Well, good morning. Hey, if you have a Bible, open up to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. We're going to be reading through verses 1 through 20 this morning. Uh, And before we read our scripture, let's pray. Ask that God would bless us, bless our time together, that he by his word and by his spirit would shape us. So would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you so loved the world that you sent your own son, Jesus Christ, uh, you sent him into this world, not to condemn us, not to judge us, not to bring wrath upon us, the wrath that we most certainly deserve for all of our sins, past, present, and future. But instead, you sent your son, Jesus, in love to, to bring forgiveness, to bring life, to bring everlasting life to all who believe in him. In fact, you sent him to bear the wrath that we deserve, to bear the judgment and condemnation in our place on the cross. And Jesus, before you left us, you said that we are to remain in your word, for your word is truth. By your word and by your truth, we're sanctified. Jesus, we know it's by your spirit and by your word that we come to know, believe, and live for you. We know that it's by the work of your spirit in our hearts that we could even know you and have our eyes open to see you and your goodness. So we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit now. Help us to believe. Holy Spirit, would you work in our hearts as we read your infallible, inerrant, inspired, and perfect words? Would your words be life to us? Would they change us, transform us more into the likeness of the Son, Jesus Christ? In his name, we pray. And as God's people, we pray together. Jesus, as you taught us, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of God. And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And Paul said to them, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. And Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And when some became stubborn, continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, Paul withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing Extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. 
Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirits answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. That's the equivalent of $6 million today. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is the word of God. It's the beginning of Acts chapter 19. Paul's just begun in this passage, his third missionary journey. Uh, the last 10 plus years of, of Paul's life have been wholly devoted to Jesus' mission for his church. In Acts chapter 19, it's about 56 AD. That's what the time frame is. But dating back all the way to 45, Paul had been devoted to Jesus' mission. Jesus' mission to take his word, his message, and teach it, spread it throughout the Greco-Roman world, teaching the message making disciples, starting new churches. That was Jesus' mission. And, and that's been the last 10 years of Paul's life, the last decade. And here he is again, 56 AD. Now for a third time, this is round three, beginning another round of missionary work. And in those 10 years, Paul encountered a lot. We've seen this as we've gone through the book of Acts. He encountered false teachers, People who are trying to persuade others that uh, belief in Jesus, you know, belief in his word, it's not important. It's irrelevant. It's unnecessary. It's even kind of backwards in some instances. You know, you don't have to believe in Jesus. He encountered false worship. In fact, one time when he was telling others about Jesus, the people in the city, they, they thought that Paul and his companion Barnabas were gods who came down from heaven. And because Paul was the one who spoke all the time, they said, oh, he's the god Hermes. And Barnabas, because he looked like a strapping guy, they're like, he must be powerful. He's Zeus. And they fell down and worshiped Paul and Barnabas. That's what Paul encountered. He encountered persecution over and over again. We've, We've seen this repeatedly. One time he was stoned within an inch of his life, dragged out of the city of Lystra, left for dead because everybody thought he was dead. Paul's encountered theological debate coming from those who taught that faith in Jesus, his grace, wasn't enough for salvation. You need to add to Jesus' grace. Believing Jesus is good, but you better start working. You have to do extra things. You have to do different religious things. And if you do those, then you can be saved. But you've got to show that you deserve this grace. Otherwise, you can't be saved. He'd, he'd encountered a lot. And in fact, in a personal letter that Paul had wrote, Right around the year that he's entering Ephesus, around the year 56 AD, around the time of Acts 19, Paul recounts everything that he had undertaken, everything that he had encountered, everything he'd experienced for the sake of Jesus. He put it this way, writing to this church in Corinth, 
He said, five times I received at the hand of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. <laughs> Paul's experienced a lot. He's encountered a lot, all for the sake of Jesus' mission. His mission to spread the word, make disciples, plant churches for the last decade of his life. And here he is, round three, third missionary journey. And Paul, as he enters Ephesus, he, he encounters something unique, something we haven't exactly seen before. Paul enters Ephesus and he encounters First, a group of people who are almost Christian. They're almost Christian. Verse 1, you, you see this. It, it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, and there he found some disciples. So Paul enters Ephesus, which is the coast of modern-day Turkey. And as Paul enters the city, he, he finds these 12 men, 12 disciples. At least he thinks that they're disciples of Jesus, and he thinks they're Christians, but he notices, all right, there's something a little bit different about these guys. They're, they're kind of saying the right things. They're kind of doing the right things. But whatever they believe, whatever they know, it's a little bit off. It seems like they're missing something. So notice what Paul does in verse 2. He starts asking them some intentional questions, trying to probe out, okay, what is it that you believe? And he starts asking them about their faith and, and their beliefs. Verse 2, Paul said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Oh, I see. That's what's off. He understands that that's what's off. Paul now understands these aren't disciples of Jesus, at least not yet. They're not Christians, at least not yet. They're disciples of John the Baptist. They were baptized by John the Baptist. They probably followed John the Baptist during his ministry two decades earlier before Jesus started his ministry and shortly into Jesus' ministry. That's what's off about these people. They're followers of John the Baptist. John was well known throughout the ancient world. In fact, a first century uh, Jewish historian, his name's Josephus, he wrote about John. And he said, quote, John had many people flock in crowds to him, for the people were greatly moved by his words. In other words, John was a powerful preacher, a powerful teacher. People would go into the wilderness and they would go to hear John and his words. And Josephus even went on to say that Herod, who was the king over this area known as Judea at the time, Herod feared the great influence that John had over the masses. And because of that influence, thought it best to imprison John and put him to death. If actually you know the story, he beheaded John, having him executed. And Luke, who's the author of Acts, what we've been going through, he also wrote about John the Baptist. He said he was a great prophet, powerful teacher. He taught about repentance and baptism for the forgiveness of sin. So John was well known. And here are 12 men 
of his followers in Ephesus now two decades later. And notice, this is what's highlighted, what they don't know. John was a great prophet, powerful teacher, taught many things, taught many things well concerning Jesus, but they don't actually know Jesus. Notice what they do not know. Paul asked them first, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And their response, verse 2, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Which means these men don't know or believe in Jesus' ascension into heaven. Remember when Jesus was resurrected? He physically ascended into heaven where he now reigns at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, ruling heaven and earth. They don't know or believe in Jesus' resurrection. They wouldn't have known about that either, how he died and was buried and on the third day rose again from the dead, triumphing over death, literally, physically in his body. They didn't know about that. It's also very likely they didn't know about Jesus' crucifixion either. How Herod had executed John the Baptist well before Jesus was put to death by Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea. So, if these disciples stopped following John when he was arrested and put in prison, it's very likely they don't know who Jesus is. They might know some of his teachings. They, they might know something about Jesus, but they would have not have known and believed in Jesus' crucifixion, shedding his blood for their sins, his death, the death in the place of the death that they deserve for their rebellion against God. They don't know about Jesus' resurrection and ascension that assures us that he is the only way for human beings to have eternal life with God in his eternal kingdom. In other words, these men know a lot. They studied under John the Baptist, a great prophet, but they don't know or believe in the powerful and saving work of Jesus. They were baptized by John, which is a great start, but they're missing something vital. They don't have the Spirit of God who makes a person believe in the powerful, saving work of Jesus, which means at the end of the day, they're almost Christian. But not truly Christian. Almost Christian. It's not altogether unlike many well-intentioned, Good, sincere, honest people today who are, you know, relatively good. They believe in God. They're religious people even. They may be church-going people. They've probably gone to church for decades. And they even know the ethical teachings of the Bible, right? Do unto others as you would have done unto you. They know the golden rule. They, they follow that to the best of their ability. They go to a church. They enjoy the messages. They find the messages inspiring. And they give them help for their daily lives, which means they're not listening to my sermons, Right? But there's just one problem with all of that. is that they don't know or believe in the powerful and saving work of Jesus. They have no clue. If asked, if you went and asked them, they don't believe that Jesus was crucified as a sacrifice for the forgiveness of their sins against God. In fact, they're actually kind of under the impression that they're basically... They're basically good people. They go to church after all, and sure, they make mistakes. They aren't perfect, but they think God will accept them because they've always tried to do the right thing. And if common wisdom tells us anything, it's that God is going to save those who are sincere and just try their best and try and do the right thing. Of course he would. He's just the nice guy. He's going to save those people. 
If you ask them, they, they probably don't believe that Jesus was literally resurrected, body and flesh, from the dead to give them new spiritual and eternal life. The idea of life after death doesn't even really concern them all that much. That They'll even say things like, you know, some people, are, they're just so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. They're just so focused on heaven and it means they're, they're, they just don't even care about the practical things of life. But, you know, you even just take that statement, right? The average person lives about 72 and a half years. Eternity is, well, eternity. And their focus is on the 72 and a half years. It's kind of this narrow-sided narrow mentality. They're more interested in God and how he can help them have peace and well-being now. How he can help them flourish now, help them be better parents, better spouses, better people now, eternity, resurrection. That's not all really important to them. They don't believe that Jesus is the ruler and king over all creation, ascended into heaven, ruling in power over every single particle of creation. They more or less believe Jesus was a good man who taught good morals and we should just follow his example. And they want their children to receive good moral religious instruction. But at the end of the day... Even though they believe all those things, because they do not have the Holy Spirit of God poured out by the resurrected, crucified, and ascended Jesus, they believe and do many things, but there's just one problem. Without the Spirit of God who gives a person faith and belief in the powerful, saving, perfect work of Christ, they are in reality almost Christian, but not Christian. You'd be shocked, or maybe you would, and I don't know. I'll put it this way. I'm shocked. I am shocked at the sheer number of people that I encounter who've attended churches for decades, some of them their whole life. They're still under the impression that, yeah, Jesus was a gifted. He was a gracious man. He taught us to love others and try our best to do what is right. And they'll even attend church every now and then. And they're under the impression that's what it means to be Christian. Do the right thing. Be a good person. That's what Christianity is all about. Yet they have never believed in the powerful, saving work of Christ on their behalf. They do not believe in Jesus as their crucified Savior who bore the wrath of God on the cross for their sins committed against a holy God. They don't believe that. They don't believe in Jesus as their resurrected and ascended Lord who's their only hope of eternal life in heaven with God. They don't believe in Jesus who powerfully converts sinners from spiritual death and darkness into the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of light. Just like these men in Ephesus, they have lived 30, 40, 50 years under the false impression that they are religious, that they're spiritual, that they are Christian and in reality. They're not Honest, sincere, thoughtful people, good by just about any standard of measurement except one measurement, the measurement of Jesus and faith in him. And all the while, they're under the false impression that they are Christians, but they do not have the spirit of God who gives a person faith and belief in the powerful, atoning, saving, perfect work of Jesus on their behalf. In reality... They're almost Christian. Jesus, he actually makes a lot about this, this connection between the spirit 
His Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the, the Holy Spirit, and belief in Jesus himself. He makes a lot about this. In fact, during the Feast of Booths, one of the high feast days in the Jewish religion, we're told that Jesus, during this feast day, he, he stood up. And on the last day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. The Spirit gives true belief. It's the Spirit of God who gives a person faith and belief in the powerful, saving, perfect work of Jesus Christ. Anything short of that means a person is almost Christian. Given Jesus' analogy here, it's a lot like saying, you almost made it to living water in the desert. Almost. You almost made it to streams of living water. It's a lot like when you tell your kids or ask your kids, did you finish your homework this morning? Ah, it's almost finished. Did you finish cleaning the table? Well, it's almost clear. Did you finish cleaning your room? It's almost clean. When Hannah hears me say that to, to my kids in the morning, she says, hey, Daniel, did you clean the bedroom this morning? <laughs> well, I thought about it. <laughs> I almost cleaned it. Jesus' analogy is much more urgent, though, isn't it? What happens if you almost make it to living water? You die. You may be in the range of water. You may be in sight of the water. You, you could see it. It's right there. But to almost drink from living water, to almost taste Living water and believe in Jesus is the same result as having never come close to living water at all. At the end of the day, to be almost near living water means you almost have forgiveness of your sins. You almost have eternal life with God. It means you almost have spiritual life. But in reality, all you really have is spiritual, physical, and eternal death. Such is what it means to be almost Christian. Such is the belief and faith of these men Paul encounters. Honest, sincere, good, well-meaning, well-intentioned people by every standard except for one, they come close, closer than some. <laughs> but nonetheless, spiritually and eternally damned. We've never even heard of the Holy Spirit and as a result they don't believe in the crucified, resurrected, and ascended Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one able to save us from our sins and give eternal life. So what does Paul do? He challenges them. He challenges them. Verse 4, he challenges them with their own teaching, the things that they already believe. He doesn't let sleeping dogs lie. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. What you believe, it's not enough. What you believe is good, what you've been taught is fine, but you're missing something vital. You're missing what John said. What John said 
was very clear. Did he not say, believe in the one who was to come after me? Believe in the powerful saving work of Jesus. He's the one you need, not me. Believe in the one to come. Only he can save you from your sins and give you eternal life. And in the next verses, you you see what happens. In verse 5, these men receive God's spirit. After hearing the word, they receive the spirit. They believe in the one John spoke about, who is Jesus. And they're baptized in the powerful name of Christ. In fact, to highlight their belief and the power with which Jesus saved these men through the ministry of Paul. Verse 6, we see that God accompanies this powerful belief with a powerful display of his spirit's work. Verse 6, when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying and there were about 12 men in all. To show these men, these, these 12, that they've been taken from darkness and brought into light, sin and brought into forgiveness, judgment and brought into grace. God gives them a powerful display of the Spirit's work. They start to prophesy and they start to speak in other languages. And and we don't see these same displays today. These these same displays, like we're going to see later with this healing that comes from the Apostle Paul. These were were healings that that showed God's kingdom was coming in a powerful way through these apostles. So we we don't see these today. But during the time of the Apostles, They were a powerful demonstration that new people, new places have been powerfully saved by the work of Jesus, whom they never knew. It's a remarkable encounter. And as he so often did, Paul, he remains in Ephesus. You see that in verse 8. And for three months, he just continues Jesus' mission. He goes into the synagogue and he teaches this message. He makes disciples. He continues to form a church in this area. We even see that God is doing these powerful works through Paul himself. Look again at verse 11. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Whoa! The powerful saving work of Jesus, powerful conversions accompanied by months and months and months of powerful displays of God's spirit and miracles. By the way, anybody here ever been healed by a Kleenex? Nobody? I bet if you did, though, it'd make you reflect, it'd make you consider, it'd make you ponder, it'd make you really think hard that maybe this Jesus is maybe just a little bit more than giving my kids good moral instruction. Maybe he's a little bit more than the golden rule, just try and be a better person. You do you, you do your best. Maybe, just maybe, he's the only hope of human beings ever entering eternal life with the living God. Maybe it would force you to consider that. And yet, look at verse 8. In spite of these powerful displays and teaching, it's clear some are content to just dismiss the whole thing. They're content in their unbelief. They're content to be almost Christian. As all of these things are going on, verse 8, we read that as Paul entered the synagogue. He was there for three months, speaking boldly, reasoning, and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, Paul withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, 
reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. There's a teacher, his, his name's D.A. Carson. He's a, he's a theologian, biblical scholar. He, he talks about this story of a good friend of his whose son had went to college, lost his faith, came back from college and told his family that he didn't want to go to church with them anymore, told him that he didn't believe in God anymore. And so Carson encouraged the father, well, we'll do this. Read books like Mere Christianity with him. Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. In fact, we, we give it out on our book table. You can pick up a copy if you want. Read books like Reason for God, which is also on our book table. Read these things and, and show him that Christianity, it's intellectually credible. It's more intellectually credible than he thinks. Just have him read the books, discuss them, pray for him. And so this dad did this, did it over the course of several months, read the books, read the chapters, prayed for his son, had honest dialogue back and forth. And at the end of all that, the son comes back to him and says, you know what, dad, maybe the claims of Jesus are more intellectually credible than I assumed. The dad said, well, then why don't you believe? Still wasn't going to church, still wasn't giving his life over to God. He said, why don't you believe? You know the son's response? I don't want to. person can hear the message, the saving, powerful work of God. A person can hear bold teaching. They've been given reasons and have others try and persuade them. They can, they can see miraculous displays. They could see a, a miracle before their eyes. But at the end of the day, there still exists a stubbornness. Some are content with unbelief. They are content to be almost Christian. Content to see living water, to see it with their own two eyes, to be within, within eyesight of it. All they have to do is walk and take from it and drink, and nonetheless, they will stay where they're at, and they will die of thirst. Paul, third missionary journey, this is what he encounters. Ephesus, something you've never seen before. Twelve followers of John the Baptist, they receive the Spirit of God, they believe in Christ, they're baptized in His name, they're powerfully saved from the sin that they're walking in and the death that they're heading toward. Others, though, they're content, they're content in their stubbornness to continue in unbelief. They dismiss the work of Jesus, never receive His Spirit, shrug their shoulders at the one who's their only hope of salvation. They're content to remain almost Christian. And verse 10, the summary of Paul's work, they continued this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Paul has another odd encounter. We, we see that next. As the evil one now begins to imitate God. All these miraculous things are happening and the evil one begins to imitate God. Verse 13, Luke writes, there were these Jewish exorcists, verse 13. They, they sound like, like a 90s rock band. They're called the Seven Sons of Siva. You know, <laughs> they begin. They begin to falsely imitate God's power. Look at verse thirteen. Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. Yeah, we have all these powers. You know, we're these spiritual people. We're these traveling exorcists. And this Jesus guy, he seems to be getting traction. So we're going to use his name instead. And they would say, "I adjure you." By the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this, but the evil spirits answered him, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? 
Even the evil spirits know these guys aren't Christians. These guys aren't disciples. They're not followers of Jesus. They don't belong to him. Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. About a year ago, I put together the preaching schedule for, for the church. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking through, okay, what are all the passages? How are they going to divide them up? Who's going to take what? Who's going to teach what? And as I was doing this one, my finger slipped. I went Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, instead of verses 1 through 20. So just, you know, slight, slight error. It was supposed to be Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 20. So I texted David Rapp, who's supposed to be preaching next week. And I said, hey, man, sorry, uh, when you're preaching, you're actually going to begin in verse 21. Sorry, I put that in originally incorrectly when I did it a year ago. And so he texted me back, what? Dang it. You're stealing the handkerchiefs and the people running around naked? <laughs> I'll have to redo all my props and visual aids for my sermon. <laughs> you're welcome that I took it. Nobody wants to see that. It's an odd encounter, isn't it? But you, you realize if you were to take your car after the service, if you were to drive north for just 20 minutes, leave Deer Creek, just drive north on either Pierce or Kipling or, or Wadsworth, you drive north for 20 minutes. And in that time, once you've driven 20 minutes, you will have passed no less than four palm readers and psychics. These are businesses that are open to the north of us. I counted them, opened it up on Google Maps. People whose profession is to speak to the dead and gain insight into the future, to read the lines on your hand to tell you what will happen in the coming year, and all for the low, low price of $39.99. You'll have passed other stores as well, several stores, that sell rocks and crystals and jewels, supposedly to, you know, these have unseen spiritual powers to give you peace and center you and balance your life and, you know, put away bad emotions, bad thoughts, things like that. Or if you were to open your newspaper, I realize nobody reads a newspaper anymore, but assume this is 25 years ago. You open your newspaper. While you're reading the newspaper and listening to your album of the Seven Sons of Siva, you'd come across these horoscopes, right, that would say, hey, because the stars are aligned in this way, because Orion's belt is a little bit further south, and because you were born, you know, mid-October 1987, because of that, this is what you should expect. You're probably going to get a raise, maybe sometime in the next year. You might have a falling out with one of your friends. All of this based on the fact that these stars are in this way, and only we have insight to tell you that this is the case, that these things are true. All of these examples, in all of them, there's one of two things happening in all of these, right? The psychic, the, the horoscope, the crystals. Two things are probable and one thing is certain. First, this is probable. That these psychic powers, horoscopes, rocks, all of these are completely fabricated and made up by man. It's probable. A way of profiting off of spirituality, a pseudo-spirituality to, to get your money. It's a con. That's one possibility. That's probable. Second, and this is also probable, that all of these things, horoscopes again, spiritual, crystals, psychics, all of these things are not made up by man, but they're fabrications of Satan himself. Two probabilities here. 
A way of making people, again, feel spiritual. A way of twisting true spirituality found in God, just as was practiced here by the seven sons of Siva. That's also probable. And there is one thing that's for certain. In both of these possible scenarios, this is certain, that God is mocked, and he is imitated, and a Christian should have no part in these They're a way of taking what God does. God alone sees the future. God alone ordains the future. God alone ordains every step because he's a sovereign ruling God over everything in the universe. God alone gives spiritual life to people. God alone gives us a Holy Spirit, his Holy Spirit. He has God himself come and live inside of us, not a vague, general, amorphous spiritual experience. And these are in imitators, fabrications that mock the true God, use his power, use his glory, use his name to scam people out of their $40 that they earned by the sweat of their brow. They take what God alone can do and they attribute them to natural forces. God doesn't need to heal you. The rocks can heal you. The stars can tell you your fortune. The lines in your hand and the dead ancestors that only I have access to, by the way, you don't have this gift. They can tell you how to proceed through life. Even the demons know those things are not of God. They're a sham. The demons respond to Jesus, I know. I'm familiar with Paul, but these things? Well, one thing's certain about them. They're a mockery and no Christian should have a part in them. Paul's encountered a lot, right? I mean, two previous missionary journeys, 10 years where he encountered imprisonments, lashings, beatings, stoning, shipwrecks, persecution, false teaching. And now here he is, third missionary journey, and he's encountered almost Christians who were followers of John the Baptist, who didn't know Jesus, even though they were good people, and almost Christians who imitated Christ, who were using Jesus for their own false spirituality, false exorcisms, and selfish purposes, a group of men belonging to the evil one, not belonging to Jesus. What's the commonality? You know, you take the whole thing now. Take all of Acts. What's the commonality in all of these encounters? What's the thread running through all three of these missionary journeys of Paul? Is that the mission of Jesus to take his word, his message, and teach it, spread it throughout the world, the teaching the the disciple-making, the starting of new churches, that mission, no matter what is encountered, Jesus and his powerful message, his powerful work, will at the end of the day be extolled. His word and his message will continue to increase and it will prevail no matter what is faced, no matter what is encountered, even the powers of the evil one, the very powers of hell cannot squander, cannot stifle, cannot stop, and cannot suppress the mission of Jesus. He will continue to prevail mightily no matter what is encountered. Nothing will stop it. No force, no opposition will ever stop the mission of Jesus, ever. I was asked recently, you know, you're a pastor, someone who's a Christian. Do you ever worry about the statistics? You ever read the statistics, the rising nuns? The rising number of people, especially younger people, when they're asked, do you have any religious affiliation? Their response is none. Does that ever trouble you? Does that ever worry you? Statistics of people leaving churches at a rapid rate in America, leaving at a rate unprecedented in our nation's history, 
statistics that suggest Christians are going to be a minority group in the United States of America by the year 2070. Do you ever worry about those statistics? Have you ever read those statistics? My only response always is, have you ever read the book of Acts? Talk about worrying statistics. The amount of nuns there were in the first century, way more than there are now. Way more. How few churches and churchgoers there were in the Roman Empire, way fewer than there are now. How Christians were a minuscule minority group in the beginning, there are far more Christians now. Well, well, but wait, what if the message of Jesus, what if the gospel, what if, you know, being a Christian becomes unlawful? Do you know where else it was unlawful to be a Christian and unlawful to spread his message and unlawful to spread his word? Do you know where that was illegal? Oh, the first century, 56 AD, when Paul entered Ephesus on his third missionary journey. You went around telling people that there is a God supreme to the gods of Greece and Rome, telling people that there is a God above Caesar himself who is Lord and King of the universe who alone can save from the power of death and sin. You start telling that. And in spite of every worrying statistic, no matter what was encountered, whether it was almost Christian opposition, even the powers of the devil himself, Jesus and his powerful message, his powerful work is extolled. It is elevated. It reigns supreme. Do I ever worry about the statistics? Never, never, never. Because Jesus' word, his mission will continue to increase no matter what we encounter. That's why we continue to teach, we continue to make disciples, and we continue to plant churches. Because that's the mission and nothing can stop that mission. The world can shrug their shoulders at it. The world can shrug their shoulders at, at Jesus. Coming generations can dismiss that message as nonsense. Others can distort it and seek to use it for their own sinful, selfish pur- purposes. Satan can rage... But Jesus' message, it cannot be stopped, it cannot be suppressed, it cannot be squandered, it cannot be stifled. The word of the Lord Jesus will continue to increase and prevail mightily, just as it did with Paul in Ephesus. Look again at verse 17. Following this almost Christian encounter with imitators of God's power, we read verse 17 that this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. You know, the powerful teaching, the miracles, the displays, the saving work of Christ. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And as we should expect, the name of the Lord Jesus is extolled. Also, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. Some of the imitators, they too, like the almost Christian followers of John the Baptist, They too receive the Holy Spirit and they are powerfully saved by Jesus. So much so that a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. And don't miss how the narrative ends because this is exactly what Luke wants to show you. Don't miss how this narrative ends. How does it end? So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Whether the message of Jesus encounters almost Christian shoulder shrugs and dismissal, or the very powers of the devil imitating Christ as an angel of light, 
the name of Jesus will be extolled and his word will prevail mightily against whatever it encounters. Finish on this. Many of you know I, I read these, these stories that, that we give away downstairs in our family, re- <coughs> sorry, our family resource room. It's called John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. It's the story of Christian who's a pilgrim who's going from the city of destruction to the celestial city, the city of life. And it's an allegory of the Christian, Christian journey. And Christian, as he's going on this journey to the celestial city, he runs into a man who had heard of Christian and he wanted to follow Christian and follow in the steps of Jesus himself. This man's name was Valiant, Mr. Valiant, Valiant for truth. He wanted to teach people. He wanted to powerfully reason with people. He wanted people to know the truths of scripture clearly revealed, not false spirituality and pseudo spirituality. He wanted to open the truth of God to people and show them who this Jesus was who can powerfully save And Christian asks Valiant for Truth, how did you come to follow me? What trials did you face? Mr. Valiant responds, well, the most resistance came from my parents. My parents tried to dissuade me. They said, think of all the obstacles you're going to face. Think of all the things you're going to have to encounter. Some people have started that journey and they never made it back to this city alive. Mr. Valiant says something but I like to rewrite it and I tell my kids this side. (laughs) I said, I bet this is what Valiant said to his parents. I may fail. I may be crushed by the forces of evil. I may be crushed by the world around me, but the word of God will never fail. Jesus will still powerfully save and his word, no matter what, this world believes his word will still be true. His name will be extolled and his word will increase mightily. I just hope to go along on the journey. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you're the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords at at your name one day. And we look forward to this day, Lord Jesus. One day at your name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you indeed are king, you indeed are Lord, and you indeed are the powerful savior of those whom you've called to yourself. You, Jesus, are the one who currently, now, as we speak, reigns and rules as king over creation, who powerfully pours out the Holy Spirit to indwell and live inside believers so that we could even know you follow you and believe in you. We praise you, we thank you, we give you all glory, honor, and power that you deserve. Jesus, would you be extolled in our midst and would your word mightily prevail in our hearts and in the world around us. And Jesus, as we come to this meal that you've prepared for us, the meal that you gave us to strengthen us as we journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city and call others to follow us on that journey. Would you use this meal, this bread, which represents your body and is spiritual food? And would you use this cup, which gives us a powerful reminder of the forgiveness of sins, that in tasting and eating these things, we, Jesus, would be forgiven, we would be cleansed, we would be renewed and strengthened to powerfully declare your word to all who have ears to hear and eyes to see. Jesus, by your living water, Your Holy Spirit, would you take this meal, this bread, this cup, set them aside and use them for an extraordinary, powerful spiritual purpose 
that you have for us and your followers. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.